Hello and welcome to Stay Paid, the sales and marketing podcast. I like saying the. Yes, the one and only sales the, and marketing podcast. I heard a crazy like the stat. Ohio State. There's only like 600,000, I think, uh, podcasts. There's only 600,000 but but, <laughs> but compared to this, there's millions of millions of blogs. Yeah. And the, the stat, I think, and I'll give credit, I think it was Katie Lance's Instagram. So Katie Lance is a big social media person. She just yep. released a podcast, so shout out to her. Yeah, yeah. But um, she put on her Instagram that basically they're predicting that people, the the consumption of podcasts is going to like 10x over the next so many years. That's crazy. And there's that it can only like. to expand because it seems so large now. It, it seems so large. It seems over, like everybody's doing a podcast. But right. when you compare it to something like blog, like blog marketing, We've barely scratched the surface. Yeah. I'd love to like see to the average shelf, of, like the average life of a podcast, how long. Well, hopefully ours is Because so many podcast, I look up, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the last episode was 2014. I'm like, what happened? The last episode. Well, that's the number one. We have a podcast on this. We interviewed, um, what's their names? The top marketing Kurt advisors. Matt, yeah. yeah, Kurt Matt, who help you do podcasts. Yeah. And they were saying the number one thing is people start and stop. Yeah. you start, And you have to be consistent with podcasts. So like anybody who's business, thinking yeah. about starting a podcast consistency Just outperforms commit. perfection. That's consistency it. outperforms perfection. That'll Hashtag be, that you know somebody. What? You're going to be able that. to find that quote on Instagram at Stay Paid Podcast. At Stay Paid. Andrea's writing that down right now. She's like, I better, I better write that down. But we are a sales and marketing podcast. Yes, from we Reminder are. Reminder Media. We're on a mission to help you close more deals and retain more business so you can live a life of freedom tomorrow, but only if you take action today, which is why we brought on the podcast today, Mr. Nicholas Stoller. Nick is one of the foremost authorities on financial advisors and is the founder and CEO of My Perfect Advisor, which intends to be the e-harmony of matching investors and consumers to advisors, regardless of the amount of money one has. His new book, The Truth Shall Set Your Wallet Free, is aimed at debunking the myths that. that prevent people from achieving their wealth goals. Nick Stoller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to see you both. Yeah, Nick, it's great to have you. I'm excited to talk to you because you've written this book and it's aimed at, you know, the consumer really from the, you know, first glance at it. But yet we're, you know, our audience, our business owners, service-based sales professionals, you know, financial advisors are listening to this. And you're going to talk to us today about how you flip the strategies, this education that the consumer gets in your book, how a financial advisor can use it to actually as a marketing initiative. And so everybody who's listening to this, especially financial advisors, listen up, stay tuned. If you're a real estate agent that's listening to this, don't tune out. Yeah. The reason why is because even though the content that he's going to talk about might be specifically geared towards content of a financial advisor, the idea of the marketing strategy, I guarantee you, will play true in your business and in your industry about using education mm -hmm. to drive people to you. So, Nick, just to, you know, introduce yourself to the audience, get everybody to know you a little bit. I was, you know, wondering if you could give your story of, you know, how did you end up writing this book? How did you end up getting your book into Barnes and Nobles all over the country? You know, what has led you on this journey? Can you give us a little bit of your background, your life story and lead us up to today? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, I've been in the securities industry, the financial advisory industry, I hate to admit it, since 1985. I know I appear to be 31, 32. <laughs> he does but, look um, 31 or 32. You know, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Reminder Media. <laughs> you guys look 31 or 32. So <laughs> anyway, you. so I started I'll off as a broker a in the mid-80s, uh, and I've been, I was only a broker for a couple of years 
uh, at Shearson Lehman Hutton at 14 Wall Street, which mm. was an ex- a very exciting time uh, up until 1987 when, when the world went a little bit differently for a couple of years. <laughs> so, um, but a, a great experience. But right after that, I went onto the side of the, sh- of the, the world to support financial advisors. So I went on to go to uh, Waterhouse Securities, which is now known as TD Ameritrade, gotcha. supporting RIAs. And there I went to National Regulatory Services to run sales. They supported uh, advisors and institutions with compliance services. And then I went on to, to co-found uh, the two largest uh, database companies, databases of financial advisor data. So I've really been supporting advisors directly or indirectly for almost all of my 30 years you know, uh, serving uh, Wall Street. And over uh, the course of time, I started to really become aware that the vast majority of investors, even really wealthy, and I'm talking 500 mil- million wealthy, mm. and I have an anecdote for that from just a few uh, months ago, have no idea about financial advisors. Even people who have an advisor, if you ask them, tell me about your advisor, here's what you're going to hear. She is lovely. She makes you know great cakes for you know the church you know get together on Sunday. Known her for ten years. He's awesome. Below golf handicap, they can <laughs> seriously. Most investors, even really wealthy ones, can't wax poetic for two or three minutes on the substance mm. of what a financial advisor does. And that's just for the side of the world that has an advisor. According to some studies, up to seventy-five percent of investors don't have an advisor. So hmm. I've been kind of observing these these data points for a long time and decided, you know, there needs to be a book to truly educate the consumer and the investor. And there are two different kinds of uh, those are two different defined you know, uh, people about not only how to get an advisor, but, but why anyone, regardless of how much money you have, uh, uh, large or small, really needs to get a financial advisor. Now, there's been a, few, a number of books written about how to find an advisor, but they fall into two camps. Either they're written by an advisor and there's a built-in perceived bias yeah. that this is just a book to push me. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you don't see those in Barnes and Nobles very often. Then every once in a while, you'll have a book written by a journalist who says some really good things, but then also bashes a whole section of retail wealth management. Mm. And that's not helpful. So as a non-financial advisor myself, I wanted to write an objective book that truly educated the reader about the world without taking sides. So, um, and then the reason for that is most investors damage themselves. They buy high and they sell low. Mm. They don't have a life insurance policy. They literally ignore their advisor, which obviously has got to be frustrating to the advisor. You're paying me. I've been with you for 10 years. Really? You don't have a will yet? I've been telling you this twice a year at every annual, every semi-annual review. So I wanted to write this book to educate consumers that you need to get a financial advisor and all these reasons that you think you shouldn't get one or can't get one are mostly myths. Some of it was based in truth from 30 years ago, bad practices, but today's advisors are nothing like what the perception is or maybe some of the reality was when I was a rookie, when I was in my 20s, and there was a lot more conduct that that is not acceptable today. So that's why I wrote the book. I genuinely wanted to educate consumers that you need, you need to get professional help. It's too complicated. Um, and as I was writing the book, you know, it dawned on me that this is a great selling tool for advisors if that advisor uses the book and the content to purely educate the consumer. Mm. And if you are using the book, say, for a seminar and you're, you're, you're at a, you know, a library or your office or a Barnes & Noble or what have you, and you get two or three clients out of 50 or 70 to attend, 
well, that, that's a great day for the advisor. So it was really written to begin with to educate the investor, um, but it also is a tool uh, you know, for advisors to, to get the word out from an objective source. It's, it's, and for the advisor, it's not their book. It's not their company's book. Right. It's, it's this objective person that kind of doesn't care who you hire, but I want you to get somebody. So now, that, that's, that's a, a quick history. No, I think that's awesome. What do you think the myths are? for advisors out there like what what is the what do you feel the consumer is feeling about advisors because i think that would be really helpful for everybody to hear um, because then how do we attack that that's the that's the question or solve it i should say it's funny it falls into kind of two broad groups people who um are uh, have moderate income and or wealth all the way down the spectrum believe they're too small to get an advisor it's just it's just a, a an assumption they all make, and the reason for that assumption is you never see an advertisement by an advisory firm saying, "Hey, if you only have twenty five grand, hire me." You just don't read that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe once a year That's in Money true. Magazine. <laughs> I mean, think of it. Think about. I've it. never thought about time, that. You're, you're right. Yeah, I've never seen don't. it. Never seen it. Like you'll see, you know, the X Y Planning Network or Cheryl Garrett's, you know, Garrett Network written about once a year in Money Magazine. Well, they have a circ of what a few hundred thousand. They write about it once. Hmm. It's simply out of sight, out of mind. Merrill Lynch and Morgan and UBS and all the very largest firms are on TV every day. So you, what you see is what you believe to be reality. So that's the reason. The that's first reason why people right say, oh, there's nobody for me because I don't know any different. And the other one is intuitive. It's kind of an intuitive. Well, I don't have a lot of money. Therefore, why would an advisor want me? Then the other yeah. part of the of the populace that believes they shouldn't have an advisor is probably due to bad conduct that they think that the perception uh, that their, their perception of bad, con- bad conduct is much higher than reality uh, or they think they're smarter than advisors and they go I can do it I can do it on my own you know yep. and I, I'm, I'm fine without an advisor and those are fundamentally flawed thoughts first of all in the bad conduct at my last company we we commissioned a white paper to compare bad conduct rates of, of financial advisors to medical doctors and attorneys just to see what will come up. It turns out financial advisors have a much lower rate of bad conduct on public, uh, you know, based on public information than medical doctors and attorneys. Oh, that's terrifying <laughs> for the doctor's yeah, side. <laughs> and, well, I mean, 5% of all medical doctors get sued annually. 7% of all attorneys get brought up on charges by their state bar. Jeez. And 7% of all advisors on average, when you put them all in one lump, have had some disciplinary history. But here's the interesting thing. And there's been other firms that have written and done this research. And and, and I cite them in my book. That's a 7% rate over the entire continuum of time since regulators have been tracking disciplinary history. So annually, it's it's sub 1%. Mm, wow. And when you think about it, in the in, and I have a whole chapter on this, when you think about it, if you know something about Wall Street, it's highly regulated. It's misregulated. It needs to be regulated. But, you know, they got six regulators on top of one firm. No, I agree, much. man. I call it the sales prevention departments. It, it, that's exactly. What, that's what they are. So they've got a huge, you know, army of people looking out for them. Yet no such army exists for the doctors and the attorneys. And yet the financial world has fewer disciplinary. So those are the reasons why people, Interesting. you know, have these myths. And, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street, while it's a fabulous movie, <laughs> you know. It doesn't uh, help. Can you, right. name a, can you name a movie that was ever produced where the, the hero saved the family from financial devastation? <laughs> the answer is no. Uh, because 
somebody thinks it's not sexy to write to create a movie like that. That's such a great point. But it, but and it's a great movie, and there's Madoff, and there's all this stuff that gets press, and so people say, oh, you know, advisors are bad. And no, I mean there are some bad advisors. There always will be. Just like there'll always be a doctor that kills a patient yep. through mm-hmm. malpractice, or an attorney that, you know. Does something wrong? It, 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 so you literally so could. I don't know if you feel the same way, Josh. You literally could rewind the last two minutes and plug in real estate insurance. Oh yeah, yeah. Like we have heard the exact yeah. same thing, and we've worked with yeah. over 140 different industries as a marketing company, oh, and wow. we hear the same thing. And it's like they don't believe you have any value. Like for real estate agents, they only believe that you put it on internet sites, and they can put it on internet sites. Well, think like, about, I mean, that the stock that's invested in 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 medical, right? The doctor, right? The risk that's involved, the yep. risk that's involved in in law, the risk that's involved in F, in financial advisory service, the risk in real estate. Yep. I mean, all of these things have such high risk that our our radar yeah. is is so high in terms of. Yeah you know, not to get, you know, for lack of a better term, screwed over or whatever. So that's what you run into with these industries. And that's something that consistently needs to be fought against. I think education is one of those things that has such a a value there. So how are you like, what are some parts of your book that a financial advisor could take, you know, tangibly and be able to use that for educating their clients or be able to use that in a marketing effort? The chapter I like the best that gets to the point quickly that advisors are worth it because there's a whole dialogue out there that you don't need one or are they worth it, whatever, is there's a chapter that actually uh, cites research from Morningstar, from Vanguard, from uh, and, uh, a, a Financial Engines' Aon Hewitt. All three of them are publicly available reports that over the past decade show that the average advisor will improve the average investor's portfolio by 300 basis points annually. Hmm. And this is not, uh, the report's not done by Merrill. Again, it's it's Vanguard, right? the largest no-load mutual fund out there that supports advisors. Uh, you know, Financial Engines, Aon Hewitt, uh, two different firms in the, in the 401k space, um, and Morningstar. So they each go to great lengths to do these independent studies that show You'll get 3% year in and year out. Well, not every single year. Like you may skip a year or two. And then in year three, the advisor will deliver, you know, 1,200, you know, basis points. Right. Um, so that I, I like to, to tell people to, to tell advisors, use that, that research because it's not from you. <laughs> it's from firms that are either publicly traded or mutually owned. And on many levels, they compete with each other. Mm-hmm. And they come to the same conclusion. And they're not the only reports. They're the only ones that are available to the public. Uh, there's other companies like InvestNet um, and other institutions that have produced a B2B eyes only, um, uh, only FINRA approved uh, uh, content for, for the institutional side. So I, I like to tell advisors, start off with that chapter when you're talking to an audience and, you're, and say you're using my book. Um, because that gets people to really think about these objective, trusted brands when you, and, when, and I used to work in compliance for six years, so seven years rather. So I have an affinity for what it means to make a public statement like that. And when I first read these reports a couple of years ago, I said, holy cow. I, I, first of all, I didn't know they'd been working on this research for a decade. Like the industry trades didn't cover it, didn't cover it very well, I don't think. And I read them. I read 11 trade pubs a day. <laughs> you know, I don't read every single article, but I read wow. the headlines and I dive into the ones I like. You know, right. like most people, I think. So... For Vanguard to publish a report, for Morningstar to publish a report 
where they have as much regulation on them as every, everybody else on the street to say that in general, and they have lots of caveats, advisors will give you th 300 basis points. That's significant. Yeah, it's powerful. I did a talk on this, a book, uh, uh, my very first book talk when the book came out in the fall. And afterwards, one of the consumers, the investors came up to me and they said, three percentage points a year, that doesn't seem like a lot. I said, well, you have a couple of hundred grand in your, in your retirement plan? They said, yeah. I said, three, three percent a year, every year compounded for 20 years. That adds up to a lot of money that you're actually going to lose if you're doing it by yourself. Mm. And you will gain if you have an advisor. So that's one thing I like advisors to, to talk about and encourage the audience, go to these different websites and check it out yourself. So that's very informative. Another thing I like to tell advisors to do is educate your audience about the entire advisor universe. That's rarely done. One of the problems in wealth management is th there's no master trade association that, go th that everybody belongs to. So if you think about um, say the diamond industry, a diamond is forever. Everybody belongs to the diamond industry council. Hmm. Every, every meat packer and, and meat manufacturer belongs to, I don't even know the, the association's name. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a meat association, yeah. you know, it's steak. <laughs> it's what's for dinner that went on for 20 years. Right. What we have in our industry are literally 30 or 40 trade associations that in the trade talk are literally telling their readers, no, we're the best designation. We're the best association. This guy's bad. We're better. There's no association above all of them that they all belong to. to say Very interesting. So what I like, and, and when you tell consumers about that, they go, you know what? I've never seen a public service announcement about just advice. All I see is firm A hates firm B. Insurance carrier Z hates insurance carrier Y. So I like to tell advisors, look at, in the chapter that talks about the landscape. There's this many hundreds of thousands of advisors, this kind of, just educate your audience about the, the world. Educate them about what the SEC is, what FINRA is. You know, you don't have to be, you know, nerdy about it, but just give a high level overview of, of, of the marketplace because I can guarantee you very few investors, even savvy ones, have ever been told this. And so that's another, and because, and, you, and I can visibly see it when I have an audience, they, they go, really? And they, they're taking notes. And like I never heard this before, I had no idea there were 700,000 financial advisors in the U.S. that can talk about investments in financial planning. No idea. And, and so really education, one of the major themes in the book is, is education. And I say to advisors, educate your audience because they haven't been objectively educated before. They, they, they've heard sales pitches and brand pitches from the industry. Right. And so they're, they're really going to be, you know, enlightened. Another thing I write about in the book is, is business basics. Most advisors are practitioners. They're either a planner or they're an asset manager or they're in the insurance, you know, uh, trade and, and they practice their craft. They're getting better, but the, the majority still haven't come to the conclusion that I'm a business person that happens to be in the advice business. Oh, that's so good. So and that, that realization is incredibly important because it translates to simple things like customer service. Right. For example, when I was writing the book, I, I offered for free to help a bunch of people I know and don't know find a new advisor. And I literally would call up advisors cold and say, I'm helping a friend out. They're looking for a new advisor or an advisor. They never had one. And you can't believe the kind of feedback or lack of feedback I would get. 
two or three days to get a phone call returned, mm. you know, or on the first call, the advisor would be subtly bashing the competition and just the, 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 the a lot of advisors don't fully understand that they've got a business and there's certain basic business protocols that if you're in another industry, you know, like the back of your hand, like return phone calls in a few hours, don't bash the competition, you know, uh, reply with any inquiry very quickly. You know, I, in fact, there, there's an advisor I know who um, will not call his clients. He said, if they want to reach me, they can reach me. I've got oh. my, my process. <laughs> That's and, like a dagger in the heart. Well, here's the funny thing. He's a, he's a great guy. And he's successful. And he, but he does not fully. And then what he is, is a lot of advisors there, they are practitioners. Right. And they want to, they really want to practice their craft. They don't want to run a business. The problem with that is you're actually doing a, a disservice to the consumers in your community that need you. I that agree. don't know about you. Marketing is, is a great thing. Sales is a great thing if done appropriately. So you should, you know, be out there marketing. You should be asking for referrals. And so and that's another thing I talk about in the book, just very basic, simple stuff. But to this day, it, it, it's the, the, these basic business concepts of customer service are, and they're not rude and mean or, or, or schlick or, 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 you know, you know, slick and with, with a sales stick, shtick. They just are their heads in, in their practice of whatever that might be. Right. As opposed to one step above and saying, this is a business. You know, how do great businesses become great? And just answer that question. Well, how can I apply that to my practice? And so that, I, I talk about that a lot in the, uh, you know, in the book. No, I love that. I mean, you can be the best financial advisor, you know, financial planner in the world. If no one knows about you, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to have anybody coming to you to be able to practice your craft. It's very interesting how we tend to do that. I, I find that even in company, even in my companies, like we tend to focus on what we love and we don't put the big picture into place. One of the things that I think you said there that was super, super powerful, I want to make sure people caught it, was this idea of education to position you as an authority on a subject matter. And I often talk about this to our client base is that, you know, I, I always break it up and to try to define it for people in systems. And the numbers don't matter as much as just the, the feel, but take the 80-20 rule. I always tell people 80% of your content should just be value driven. It should be giving. I'm giving you something. It's not, it's not about me. It's not about my company, though it might involve financial advising and stuff like that. It's not about that. And then 20% should be really to position yourself as the authority on the subject matter that you want people to come to you for. And that's how you keep people engaged. So I send things to you, Nick, that you love, that's value to you. Heck, it could be things like the, you know, I make the cake for the church right down the road, those type of things that get you to like me. But then it's so critical to have that authority on a subject matter. And that's where this stuff like educating consumers on what it what the landscape of the you know advisor landscape is like i think about that in terms of insurance or real estate agents like imagine if you opened up your listing presentation or opened up your insurance presentation with educating them on all their options out there like my brother 
He's a real estate agent. There's, I think, over 800 agents just in his local little area. It would be amazing for him to just open up his presentation going, hey, just so you know, there's actually over 800 different agents you could choose Mm -hmm. in this area. And you're almost positioning yourself so powerful because you're not scared of them knowing that. I want, I want to tell you, you know, everything that's out there for you, whether you use me or not use me, I want to tell you what's out there. And you're, you're positioning yourself in this value driven. And I think that's so critical that people miss. And we tend to, when we're in industries, I don't know if you have experienced this or agree with this, your thoughts on it, but I feel like what we tend to do is we tend to, okay, I'm an expert at financial planning. So I need to market to people that I'm a financial planner. I'm the best financial planner. I can help them. You know, here's my stats. Here's what I do. And that's all we do all day long versus going the route of saying, okay, I'm great at financial planning. So how do I go out and build relationships with people and give value to people? And then when the opportunity presents itself, I offer my things of financial planning. I offer my services. And I feel that's what the education route gets you. I also feel the entertainment route gets you that as well, or the lifestyle route. You can use the same type of strategies with education that you can with lifestyle-based content or entertainment-based content, because it's all doing what? It's all about building that mind share. Mm -hmm. It's like building that top-of-mind awareness. So, in this you know, book that you've written, right, you've, you're turning it kind of on its head and you're giving people marketing strategies. Have you had advisors use this in their experience? What has their experience been with the advisors that you've worked with in using this? And what are some of the practical applications? I know you mentioned seminar, but are they yeah. using the education through just seminars? Is it social media? Like what are some of the applications and have advisors done with this? Great question. So the book came out November 13th, so it's a little over four months. So, so far, I've had advisors tell me that they're uh, getting the book in bulk and giving it to their, for example, their centers of influence. Yeah. That's great. That's what I was sitting here thinking. Yeah. uh, There's an advisor who, you know, I I, uh, interviewed in in the book. And he's a great testimonial. And he said, I'm going to give, you know, multiple copies to all the CPAs and attorneys that are referring me business. That's great. So that's one way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think it's because those centers of influence are always asked the question, I need an advisor. Correct. But I don't know who to pick. And for the attorney, the CPA, to just, here's, here's an objective book. They're written by a non-advisor, but he's an expert in the, in the industry. And you can also find it in, in a Barnes and Noble store and, and blah, blah. So, so that's one tactic. Another I love tactic. That. I don't want to, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. I want to add just a real story to that. Our lawyer, I just asked our lawyer for his references to financial advisors. So just um, so you guys know, like it's real stuff. That's how it happens. Our company lawyer, I asked him, hey, you know, I'm looking for more financial advisors. Can you, and he sent me over four names. So I I think I just wanted to add that, you know, to to just the legitimacy of connecting with the lawyers to CPA. So didn't want to cut you off, but wanted to add that. And actually, now that you mentioned that, a great thing for him to do is, here's four people I know, to help you understand them and ask the right questions, here's a book, and the book actually has questions in there, and you can download for free off my website the the, the forms. And what I suggest oh, in the great. book is when you go to see an advisor, a couple of tips, bring another adult with you to have a second set of eyes in the room, have the book in your hand, have the printed out form in your hand. And, and it's like 35 questions, and some of them are a little uncomfortable, but they're phenomenal questions to ask the advisor and and ask them the questions and write them down. And then when you get home, compare all four. 
and it'll be very apparent usually which advisor is is for you. And some of the questions are a little, you know, like I suggest one of the questions is, have you ever been censured by your employer or your regulator? <laughs> and if the answer is yes, what is it? And the majority of advisors will say no, because they haven't. And a small percentage will say yes, and it's usually perfunctory. But the look on their face when you ask that question is going is informative. Interesting. And the and the other questions you ask, how much do you charge? Exactly who pays you? How do you get paid? An advisor that doesn't want to answer that question or, or says or blows it off, you should just get up and leave. Very few advisors do that these days, but there are some. So and there's nothing to pay. If you you know, you, you charge for a quality service, you should have no problem. So, you know, having the book in such another tangential way, um, there's advisors that license the content because they've got their own content and they want to take a couple of you know, bits and pieces of chapters, you know, under license. That's a good way to use content, my content with their social media or other, you know, printed material. And then the physical conference, the physical event um, is uh, a very, uh, um, and that's early, not many have been done yet, but basically they, um, I like to suggest use Barnes and Noble as a location, um, because the book is not in every Barnes and Noble, but it's in a bunch of them. And, um, people don't know this Barnes and Noble will let you have an event at any store. It's the store manager's decision. And if it means that 50 copies are going to be bought, they're going to say yes, almost always. And it's a nice objective place to go. Um, if, if that location allows you to do it, and not all locations will let you to do it, but go to a Barnes and Noble, you know, invite 50, 60 people and do, and do the talk. And that, and that's a great way. And it's, and it's not your typical, you know, rubber chicken dinner, right? It's not, it's not a sales pitch about a product or even yourself. And it's in, and if, and if you can't get a Barnes and Noble local library yep. is a great, a great venue that is a low pressure kind of venue to have uh, an event. So those are some of the the the, the ways that um, advisors have been using uh, the you know the yeah. content. These are I mean these are these are strategies that like you the tool that you have with the book is a very specific one. But these strategies would apply to any industry with any tool. People oh, are longing for transparency. Yep. And if you yep. have the if you have the power and the the uh, the ability to put out there, here's a list of questions that you should ask a financial advisor. As a financial advisor, knowing that you're going to get those questions returned to you, you are building trust from the very beginning. And as yeah. we know, in order to earn someone's business, you, they have to know you, they have to like you, they have to trust you. And you're moving into that trust zone extremely fast. Nick has a tool that you can that you can get and put into practice. But if you're in a different industry, what are some of the questions? What are some of the things that you can also be putting out there that's not only adding value, but is opening yourself up to start building that trust? Think about it from like a lead magnet perspective on your social media. Yeah. The top 10 questions you should ask X, like the top 10 yeah. questions you should ask your finance. When interviewing a financial advisor, the top 10 questions to ask. When interviewing a real estate agent, the top 10 questions to ask. Like that's a really, a really good lead magnet because whoever downloads that from Facebook, from a Facebook ad, guess what they're interested in? <laughs> they're interested in a, they're interested in a financial advisor, or real estate agent. So, no, no, I think that is awesome, man. I, I really think that it goes back to what we talked about earlier of the myths 
on financial advisors in these industries, and it's what you said, Josh, it's that the it's because the stuff you're dealing with is the heaviest stuff. Like your, your purchase of your home is the biggest you know, yep. financial purchase for most people. The investment of your retirement, I mean, that's a very nerve-wracking thing. So our natural inclination is to become like a turtle and, and go in and guard ourselves versus being open. And the only way you earn that trust is through education and giving. So I'm well, curious. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, there's a, there's a phenomenal ad. It happens to be by Schwab. And if you guys have seen this ad, if you haven't Googled it, it's a phenomenal ad. It's a, a, um, it appears to be an upwardly mobile or actually a, a high net worth couple. And it's maybe a 45-second spot. And there's five vignettes. And the vignettes are, you know, they're shopping for a car and they're asking all kinds of incredible questions. And, and the sales guy at the car dealership is like, whoa, you know, you know what torque is and you, and you, 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 <laughs> you know, know too much. <laughs> whoa. And then the next vignette is they're at a, they're at a, you know, an arborist and they're buying specialty trees and they're asking about dew point and moisture, blah, blah. <laughs> and then, you know, there's two more vignettes and, and, you know, these people, you know, they've got it together. They're maybe in their late forties. The last one, they're in front of their financial advisor, and they're sitting down in front of his large desk, and he, he looks at them and he says, you know what, I think I should put you into our new fund. And the husband and wife look at each other and go, okay. <laughs> and and That's one so of the good. lessons in the book I try to teach advisors is, your prospects have a gazillion questions. They don't want to appear stupid. They're not going to ask you these questions. And this affliction really applies to people the wealthier they are in many cases not all that 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 affliction is worse because mm. they are wealthy they are successful yep. i don't want to appear dumb and so they don't want to ask you questions so in the absence of questions say to them you haven't asked me diddly you you got to have questions what right. you, i know you're smarter than that you got you got to hammer me with questions and get it out of them because they're on their mind right and they're going to leave your office without those those questions answered. Well, yeah. And, and, then, and, I'm, and I'm a sales guy. I don't want a prospect right. leaving my call or my site right. unless I've answered oh, yeah. every question. Well, that's one of the biggest pain points work that... with them. Buyer's remorse. Well, that's one of the biggest pain points in financial services, right? That that every, what, the high worth, the average high worth, high net worth client. individual has 4.4 4. 4. 4 4 advisors. You know, so oh, if wow. you're the advisor saying what you're saying to, to your client now, Nick... Who do you think they're going to come back to? Mm -hmm. If you're the exactly. one pushing them to broaden the conversation, go deeper yep. into the relationship, they are going to come back to you more times than those other 3.4 advisors that they have. Yeah, I, I actually did not know that uh, statistic uh, that the average investor has over four advisors. And it, it's also another thing that advisors don't do. They kind of assume their client or prospect knows a lot more than they do right. because of the absence of questions. <laughs> sure. And that's Anyone kind of would, intuitive. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So another thing advisors don't do and they should do is they should tell their client up front, here's what I don't do. So for example, if you're just an asset manager, I don't mean just, I mean, if, if you focus on asset management and you're not a financial planner, tell them that. Very good odds. They may assume you also deal with estate planning or right. taxes. And they leave your office. Maybe they sign up, and four months later, okay, I need to do this. And you're like, I don't do that, you know. And it's it's you need to tell them what you do and what you don't do, and that's part of the communication. And I talk about that in the book because you know investors are not hearing that from most advisors, and they should. It'll shorten the sales cycle in all likelihood as well. 
I love that, man. I, I love the idea of being super direct with people up front. And like, I'm a sales guy at heart. For those who don't know me and can't tell, I'm sure you guys can tell in the first you know, five seconds of talking to me. But I'm a sales guy at heart. And one of the things that was a, a kind of a mind shift for me and really a change in my whole way of sell- selling was originally I thought you go in and you don't reveal that you want to close somebody and that you want to, you know, like hydrant. You almost like hide your intention, not because you're trying to be evil or something like that, but that's just, you think, Oh, I can't say that yet. Cause they're going to feel like I'm trying to sell them. It's actually better to state your intentions front, from the yeah. very beginning, what you do, what you don't do. My intention is I would love to earn you as a client. That's my hope after I educate you here. Like you state your intentions and then the whole rest of the, the presentation, they know exactly what you what you want. You get to educate them now through your value propositions and everything that you're doing. And at the end, there's no illusion and you can be very real and they will have real questions. But so many people, they hide their intentions. They hide what, you know, they try to kind of be soft about it. And then at the end, you know, there's this real awkwardness when it comes to earning a client because you're now about to state your intention. <laughs> they know what you're about to do and everybody feels awkward in it, and that's when it falls apart. So I, I love it, man. You, I mean, I could talk to you forever. You feel like a wealth of knowledge on just all your experience. But I, you know, have two more questions for you and we'll wrap it up sure. here. But my first question is, you know, in your life, you know, you've gotten to this point and you've had a really long career and successful career and been able to do a lot of things. And now you've written this book. What has been the routine or formula or things that you've done consistently that you've found to drive success? Because I'm always after, I know there's no magic formula, but I always love to hear with successful people, what are the things that they have applied to their life that has driven success to allow you to get to where you're at? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I, I like to read about and hear about people's views on how they've become successful and, and become happy doing what they're doing. And for me, it's been just being persistent and not uh, uh, giving up on whatever it may be. And um, so there's been companies I've started or things I've done where you, you know it doesn't work out immediately, and so you know you just have to keep going, in, you know, at it. And there's a fine line with insanity yeah. of, of, of pushing a rock uphill and it just, you know, define the laws of gravity, you know, you, you know, you, and that's sometimes that's, sometimes that's difficult to mm. define the, the difference between the, between the two. But, um, you know, also going with my gut, I, 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 I can visualize every time in my career where I've gone against my gut, whether it's hiring someone or a business strategy. And in every company I've started or worked at, there was two or three occasions where I went against my gut. And my initial gut was to do this or not do that. And I betrayed it. And every time I've done that, mm. it ended up being a big wow, problem. Man. So wow. most people's guts, like the first thing you think about, should I hire this person? Should we do this as a business? Usually the first thing that comes to your mind, usually, at least for me. has been <laughs> No, right. I agree with I, that. Yeah. That hits to my core, man. That, that really does. That is powerful. I, I agree yeah. with you there. It's just so often we betray our gut because also you feel peer pressure. I don't know if you guys feel peer pressure, but you feel like, okay, well, everybody else around the table, I feel like they're, they're saying something else. So you, so you kind of give in and you don't voice your strong belief as, as what you should. Well, that and your gut is not, is a collection of experiences that you are recalling very, very quickly in the moment. 
is is, is that's a great way to say it is all that yeah that, is that i've seen like it. the gut reaction be it's it's not it's not arbitrary like yeah. it's it's you just recalling your experiences and and that's usually the thing your data right points, before yeah. you start applying all of this new information and logic and like you said outside influences <laughs> yep. into your decision making oh freaking outside influences kills me <laughs> <laughs> and so, that's hard too because if you have a business partner you, you can't you you you, you can't ignore it yes yeah you can't ignore it yeah you, you can't ignore it and so that can be you know that can be challenging but those are the two things that i attribute to that's awesome me being happy and what and successful in what i've been doing now i love that okay so last question we'll get a little deep here but hopefully not make you cry you know so <laughs> looking back now what would you go back and tell younger nick that that kid nick in his life you know, now you've been on this journey and you're years in the future, but what advice would you give your younger self? It's a great question. And unfortunately, your podcast isn't like six hours long because <laughs> that, that's a long list of things I would unwind and do differently. But, uh, but that's a great question. So probably, um, you know, being a Roman Catholic, uh, or at least brought up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the the power of guilt is infused early <laughs> on in, in your in your uh, in your schooling. So I, I again have have great visual uh, history in my own mind of what I should have done when I should have made a left or a right. Mm. So there, there's a bunch of things I should have done. Um, uh, there's I mean, I, I jumped from uh, to a bunch of different schools because I was, I was an entrepreneur in college and I, I quit school for a year to start a business and, you know, and maybe I shouldn't have done that, you know, if I, if I stuck with a, a certain school and graduated earlier, you know, so there's things like that, that maybe would have been better, you know, decisions. Um, and the betraying my gut thing, I, you know, there, there are strategies that we've, we've I've taken in the past that turned out to be bad. And, you know, I, I was like, ah, maybe I shouldn't do this. I think it'll work out. And so, a couple of those decisions I would have done, you know, differently. But specifically, maybe um, uh, not, uh, not, you know, leaving school for a year or two. Although those were great learning years, you know. So I, I did learn a lot when I left school for a year to start a business, uh, and I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, and, and that was. I don't think anyone lesson. does. <laughs> you know. So um, and and also uh, being a, a patient. Um, so uh, when I was much younger, there, there's a couple of companies I worked for and I was really impatient. Um, and I'll tell you the name of the firm. It was, uh, it was Waterhouse Securities, now TD Ameritrade. And I was the third employee in the institutional division. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, now, now it's, it's like yeah. thousands of employees. This was 91. And so at that time I was, whatever, how old I was, I was very impatient to be very successful very quickly. And at the time, the firm, I'm being very specific, uh, did not have, at least at that point in time, a, uh, a desire to be number one. And our number one competitor was Schwab. And I joked with my then manager, I said, just lie to me. Tell me management wants to be number <laughs> one. Me, right? just, satisfy, <laughs> just satisfy the impatience in me. Just yeah. please. He's like, no, nah, we're fine, blah, blah, blah. You know? mm. And so I got impatient and I left. And I gave up some, some uh, uh, vested stock options. Oh, wow. And I went, you know. And it was great. I got stock for free. It was a wonderful experience. But in hindsight, if I was a little more patient back then and hung there with the firm a few more years, uh, you know, that would have been probably a very alternate career path. But maybe that would have been better. So, yeah. the, so I have a little regret around around doing that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
but yeah, but so it's kind of hard to teach patience to a, a 24 year old, uh, <laughs> guy who thinks he knows more than the guy who built a $400 million right. company. <laughs> <laughs> no, those are some great uh, lessons, yeah, man. Seriously. Great answers. <laughs> Appreciate you sharing that. And thanks for being here, Nick. Appreciate you coming on. Let people know where they can get your you. book, how they can find you online, if they can follow you anywhere. Great. Thank you. Uh, NicholasStuller.com is my website. Awesome. And you can follow uh, my, my blog uh, there. The book is on Amazon. It's on BarnesandNoble.com. It's in uh, an awful lot of Barnes & Noble stores, especially in the Northeast. Uh, but most people like to buy the, the book online, either Amazon or Barnes and & Noble. And it's, in, and, it's, and it's entitled, The Truth Shall Set Your Wallet Free, Secrets to Finding the Perfect Financial Advisor. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again for being here. And thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today here on Stay Paid, please go on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Make sure to leave a comment. You can also find this video on YouTube.com slash Reminder Media or StayPaidPodcast.com. Make sure to tell someone else about the podcast today if you liked it. If you want to get hold of me or Luke, actually, if you don't like it, tell someone to. <laughs> tell them about how much just you spread didn't the word. like it. We like bad news and good news. Just spread the word. It's <laughs> PR, baby. PR. <laughs> you can also email us at podcast at ReminderMedia.com. Did you hear me hit my mic right there? <laughs> Mike's, uh, Luke's going to throw the mic around for a little bit. You can now follow us on uh, Instagram at Stay yes. Paid Podcast. And of course, you can check out Reminder Media on all the socials. We're at Reminder Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest. For this episode of Stay Paid, I'm Joshua Stike. And I'm Luke Akery. And Nick, just want to say thank you one more time because really, man, just listening awesome to stuff, your story man. is so good. I mean, when I <laughs> I love it when I have a podcast where I really don't say anything because I'm just literally just listen, yeah. learning. <laughs> I'm learning, listening. Yeah, this is the best interview. So does so. the audience. They like Oh, uh, yeah. They don't like hearing well, us speak. <laughs> but su super good stuff. You know, our goal with Stay Paid, as you guys know, you know, have listened to us frequently, is to give you actionable items that you can apply to your business. And I think, you know, it's really, really obvious this theme of education and doing that in your business. But I would challenge all of you, the actionable item I would give to each and every one of you is in this education that he talked about and this using this lead magnet of the top questions that you should ask in your industry. If you're interviewing for a real estate agent, what are the top questions that, that someone should ask a real estate agent? What are the top questions to ask a financial advisor? Go get Nick's book. He has it all written out for you. You don't even have to do the work. And I promise you, if you're a real estate agent, you just Google, you'll probably find a bunch of really, really well-written stuff of questions to ask real estate agents. Use that, turn that into a lead magnet for your business. You can create a Facebook ad. If you guys don't know how to create Facebook ads, we have that on our YouTube channel. So if you go to youtube.com slash reminder media, just search for our webinar on creating a Facebook ad, and it will walk you through just how to do that. And so create a Facebook ad where it allows them to download those questions. And all of a sudden, now you have a lead for your business that you can nurture. And it was tro totally driven out of value and education and offering something. Remember, the difference between a top producer and a mediocre producer in every industry is what, guys? You've heard me say it week after week. It's top producers take action. So take action on that today and make it an unbelievable day in your business. 